The Money Show. Shapeshifters. I'm calling him Grape Shifter instead of Shapeshifter. His name is Michael Fridge and he is South Africa's Mr. Wine. How is the wine trade? I think the wine trade is good, but <laughs> slightly fragile everywhere. So there are all kinds of things. If you look at the local wine scene, it's more exciting than ever. There are lots of new and very talented producers coming into the market. There's been consolidation amongst the bigger wholesalers. The quality um, that the big guys produce is, I think, unmatched pretty much worldwide. The value of the rand makes exports good, but they should be much better, and that could be attributable to many things. But the industry is tough. It takes big hits in terms of excise. That really hurts, and the weather has not been kind to growers for the last two years. Uh, The 23s, the reds, took quite a lot of wet weather, which didn't make for nice red wines. And this year, crop sizes are down, and the wind, when it blows, blows. stops the grapes from ripening. They simply, this tomato will not, it can be in full sun, the wind blows, it can't ripen. Finally, the grapes get very tired and they shrivel. So they're a bit scared at the moment, but they are crossing the fingers. If you're a wine producer, by the very definition, you have to be an optimist. No, if you grow anything, produce anything from what you grow, you have to be an optimist. How many producers do we have in South Africa? Are we growing the number of producers? My sense is that there's quite a lot of consolidation happening. So if you look at the grower side of the industry, in the last, say, 25 to 30 years, the numbers have halved. Early 1990s, there were 5,000 grape growers. Today, there are 2,500. That's a straight yeah. halving. It's a pretty much a worldwide trend. Between 1985 and 2015, a similar consolidation in Bordeaux amongst the fruit growers. In terms of the number of people making wine in their own or in rented cellar space, it's kind of stabilized at just over 500 compared with probably 300 30 years ago and 600 at its peak when optimism got the better of many people's (laughs) judgment. No, no, and judgment and and wine don't necessarily always go together. What's the old GT Ferrero joke? R-O-E. Wine is is about R-O-E. And you go, well, you're a banker. Return on equity? No. Return on ego. Return on ego. It's about the only return you can get. Um, and and there, are lots of, there are lots of jokes about it, of course, um, com- coming through. But I mean, I, I mean, I, where, how did you fall in love with wine? How did you know that it was going to become your life? I didn't. I had a misspent youth, which started much earlier than would have been legal today. My parents were of that generation that believed you should be brought up with a glass of wine every now and again. The more I learned about wine, the more I liked it. So even though I was academically quite strong and went to university and did things that looked like I might one day have a career, the thing I liked doing most was around wine. So I drifted into it, always thinking that one day I would grow up and get a proper job. And it didn't ever happen. And, you know, certainly into my 40s, I kept thinking it is still possible. (laughs) It is still possible that I will look at this slightly precarious existence of being um, a wine man about town with no really single business producing enough income on its own for me to feel properly secure, um, that I would finally see something that just, you know, 
guaranteed to give me security at whatever I was doing. Never happened. The attraction of wine and the niche, I suppose, that I landed up carving for myself, which by its very nature was also a comfort zone, meant that I just carried on more or less on the same track. It diverged in different ways. So from consultancy into things like events like WineX, Trophy Wine Show, into the Wine Wizard app, into the business that imports wine, reciprocal wine, all of these entities um, kind of growing out of the involvement with wine and the gaps within that spectrum that presented themselves. Uh, it's a wonderful diverse portfolio with a, with a wine underpin. But 30 years ago, um, there was Niederberg, uh, there was Delheim, there was Chateau Libertas. And so dis, um, you had Stellenbosch Farmers Winery that had a whole bunch of labels. And there was nothing particularly exciting or, or very sexy. This has been an industry that has truly gone exponential since the advent of democracy. Democracy has been very good for the wine industry. Democracy has certainly been good for the wine industry. And although there was a huge kind of boom in terms of new plantings and numbers in the isolation years of the 80s, there were no markets. No. And there, I think there was probably a reasonable shortage of skill as to how to manage those new varieties. So everything was starting to happen. And then along came democracy. And we went from exports of 25 million litres a year in the early 1990s to as much as 450 million a few years ago, pre-COVID, probably 2015, 2016, well over 400 million litres. That's a very big boom. It did coincide with the vanishing of the KWV. Remember, the KWV existed as a buyer of last resort. Please explain KWV to me, because I do remember in the bad old days that you couldn't buy KWV wine in South Africa. It was only for export, and only members of parliament got an, an allocation of KWV. So if you knew a member of parliament, you could have a bottle of Redeberg. Oh! And it was just uh, probably pretty revolting. I don't know. I don't, it was I'm, pretty solid wine okay. of the same kind that you could have bought from any wholesaler. So... In those days, before the transformation, as we like to call it, of the KWV, which was late 1990s, a process that they initiated and which was then blocked, uh, quite rightly, I acted with and for Derek Hanukum. They were told, effectively, you can't just become a corporate, having made all your money from being, in a sense, the buffer between government and the growers. You owe some of that money back to the industry. So that all happened in 1999. But prior to that, it was essentially a control board. As a control board, it guaranteed a minimum price to the growers, which is why we had 5,000 yes. growers. And those growers effectively could break even on the KWV's price, providing a, their tonnages were high. Yeah. Well, high tonnages generally mean not great quality. And providing they were able to sell some themselves as kind of their own bottled wine and could dispose of everything else into this melting pot of KWV wine. And that's how it worked. When that safety net was taken away from them in that transformation process, if we hadn't had a growing export business, there would have been a shortfall, mm -hmm. an absence of market for three or 400 million litres. 
that market came from exports. But these days, the bulk wine market is not great anywhere. There's a worldwide decline in per capita wine consumption. So the inevitable result is that, yes, the farmers are selling their wines, but at lower and lower prices. And even the decline in the value of the rand is not not sufficient to compensate. But the top end producers are producing the most astonishing, astonishing wines. And yet it feels like it's the, the, you kind of got to drive your, those, those top end wines individually. So if you're a producer, if you're Villafonte, for example, if you're Mike Ratcliffe, you are on the road constantly um, with, with, with coat with big bottles in, inside your jacket and you flashing at people at airports saying, please buy my wine sort of thing. Um, it's, I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that. Um, you see a lot of distilled wines. Um, you, you see the big, the big brands sort of being represented in, in duty freeze in some places because they've got the Amarula distribution there, which helps them then uh, get their wines on the same palate um but but yeah then you get the 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 boutique wineries i suppose berry brothers and rudd in london for example and they must be similar in the united states that import small amounts it's not getting the sort of global exposure it so richly deserves it's hard so it's one of the problems is those exactly those two extremities so i think at our very top end so distel which is now heineken beverages or douglas green bellingham dgb or any one of those they produce really good quality wine at really competitive prices and they get them out. But the trouble is that they don't have the same niche appeal as the niche wines have. So they're forced to go out and do big deals with the supermarkets. Once you're in the supermarkets, in the Tesco's, etc. of the world, then by definition you can't also be in a Berry Brothers. And there's very little in the in-between space that can get critical mass. So Anthony Hamilton Russell at a presentation last year pointed out that most of the people in his kind of classically styled South African wine circle, so bigger than Urban Saadi and Chris Olhart, but smaller than Niederberg, um, they are typically producers of ten to 20,000 cases a year, and they probably have 40 or 50 export markets, which is in itself remarkable. But by the time you've spread it that thin, you can't really make an impact for brand South Africa in any place. And if you look at the United States, it's really 30 or 40 separate markets over and above the red tape, which makes it quite difficult to work there. If you look at the United States, that means you've got to go to 30 or 40 countries just in the United States and get them to agree to list your stock and the first response, which I've had first-hand experience of, is they're going to say, nobody's going to walk in and ask for it. No. So it's really organic growth. It's certainly been much more successful in traditional markets. So the UK, funnily enough, France, Germany, the low countries, even Italy. It, it, it's places from which we source our tourists who come in, I guess, and then have warm and fuzzy feelings about a beautiful day in the Winelands going for lunch at, I don't know, um, Ristenfrieda, which is just wonderful. I was there the other day. Glorious surroundings, absolutely beautiful. And you want to relive the moment. And the best way to relive the moment is into a glass. And a there are thing. lots of, of, of things. There's an app app now called, I think, Salome, which works 
just for the producer. So you walk into a tasting room and you're a foreign tourist and you want to buy that wine delivered to your home. There's now an app that tells you which wines are available in which markets. So the growing export business is also now partly supporting the cellar doors yes. of the wineries themselves, which helps everybody. And that is why the growth is there, but it's slow and organic. organic. There isn't that sort of moment where the world will discover South Africa the way they discovered Australia in the 80s. Yeah. And Australia went from being kangaroos <laughs> within five years to the biggest source yeah. of supply to the UK market. Amazing, isn't Sunshine it? Sunshine in a bottle, and that's what everybody suddenly wanted. And just that point, the decline in wine consumption is at the end of a very long upward wave. Since the 1980s, wine has been a la mode. And now there's a new generation of kids who say, you know what, I'm not sure. I want to drink only wine or that much wine or even drink it all. So there is that stuttering that mm. we're seeing now as the generation that discovered wine in the 80s is moving on and the next generations aren't nearly as convinced. Well, all the more for us. Um, <laughs> you've got a wonderful way of scoring wine and you go through a process of tasting 100 wines in a morning and, you, you yes, it's the spitting of the wines and you've invited me previously. I've never been able to make it to come and observe the process of how the wines are tasted and you give them a score out of 100. And because it's a blind tasting, you have no idea if it's a bottle of Chateau Libertas or a bottle of Chateau Pietras. You would probably tell the difference between the two, but some of us might struggle a little bit. But you will go, this is a very good wine, and you might give the Chateau Libertas an 85 or whatever the case might be, and the Pietras a 91. And suddenly when I go into a shop and I see on the Wine Wizard app that actually, you know, at a price point of many thousands of dollars cheaper than a Chateau Petrus, or a Petrus, I think it's called, yeah, I think well. it's got a Chateau in front of it, um, uh, you know, maybe the, the Chateau Libertas isn't a bad deal and because it's an 85 and how bad can an 85 be? And I can make that choice. However, people are still wedded to the platter guide, which I find strange because it's quite a cumbersome, difficult, small print thing to do and not very techno-wizzy. But wine drinkers don't seem to be that adept at adapting to, to modern tech when it comes to checking out their wines? I think they are they, they, they are certainly fading on Platter. Platter is the same reliable guide it's always been. Um, these days, I suppose, the single problem is that from the moment it's in, you know, on the shelf, it starts it's dated, to be yeah. dated. But it's a pretty reliable indicator for what it's worth. But people don't want to walk around with a book and the current generation certainly doesn't. So in its heyday, it was probably the biggest selling book in South Africa every year. In John and Erica's time, fifty to 60,000 copies were sold. It's down now to certainly under 20 and probably somewhere hopefully around 10 or 15. It's, it's very important for the industry, yeah. and I suspect that many of the purchasers are in the industry. You know, we buy half a dozen copies. It's in the office. It's a phone book. It's a reference point. What went into this wine? It's all ready for you if you happen to have the guide on hand and you don't, say, have a fast internet. But, yes, it's been superseded by all kinds of circumstances, and it hasn't found a ready replacement. Where is the most exciting wine region to your mind 
right now and who's producing wine I'm in the I'm going to sound desperately patriotic, but and I'm not alone in this. It's South Africa. If you look at all the leading international Jansen Robinson, Jansen yeah. Tim Atkin, Neil Martin, Anthony uh, Muller, all of the guys who come to South Africa or taste for South taste South Africa for the international publications say the same thing. The level of dynamism, the level of nuanced and very thoughtful winemaking. But a huge percentage of that is very geeky. <laughs> and by that, I really mean that more than 50% of the wines about which they enthuse, you could not walk into a bottle store in Johannesburg and find easily. Yeah. You'd have to get it railed to you. You'd have to go onto the internet, have to phone the producer. It's getting a bit like, you know, the heyday of the Napa Valley, where if you weren't on the mailing, some of the farms genuinely have a waiting list to get on the mailing list. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Because also they can't produce the volumes. Okay, in South Africa then, if South Africa is the epicenter of wine brilliance, where in South Africa is doing most of the magic? Is there, there one place? There, no, there's not. That's part of the magic of South yeah. Africa, is that if you look at where we are in terms of temperate zone, and you go on a horizontal line from Elgin to the Swatland, you're really talking about basically one or two degree points maximum of latitude. But you're going from Indian Ocean to Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. You're going from hill country to flatlands. You've got truly fabulous Chardonnay in Elgin. No question, it is the epicenter of fine Chardonnay. In Swatland, you're seeing extraordinary things Obviously, the old vineyards are helping, but there's great Chenin Blanc. Oh. There's really finely managed Shiraz or Syrah, however you mm -hmm. call it, Tinta Barocca. Lots of Rhone-style varieties that are performing well then. But right in the middle of this is Stellenbosch. Yes. And Stellenbosch is probably the most versatile single region in the world. And I mean that. You get great Chardonnay. Fabulous Cabernet, yeah. good Semillon, and if you've got the Semillon, you can manage the Sauvignon Blanc. There's fabulous Shiraz. It really is a very broad opportunity, partly because it's many regions rolled into one, and it just happens to have a climate that works very well for fine wine production. If I was going to buy one case of wine, which I, and I've, I've tried this for many years to, to buy a store, and it's so delicious, you just drink it. But if I was to buy one case of wine that I was to give to somebody else to store for me, um, to make a decent return over 10 years, that's not Canon Corp. That's not Bayer's Clutier's diesel pinotage or something along those lines. Okay, so that's case. It's, that is a different question. I'm happier to answer that than which one will give you most pleasure in 10 no, years' time. No. So you're talking about the investment potential of those yes. wines. This is the money show. This is the money show. And the answer is you absolutely can't go wrong on Eben Sadi. Yep. You certainly can't go wrong on the older single sites of Chris Ollat's Chenin Blancs. They're really there. I've certainly seen... Upward, constant upward movement in wines like Porcelainberg. Um, my slight reservation there is I just hope that the quantities don't grow relative to the demand. Yes. Whereas in the case of the old vine producers, your guarantee, in fact, is that if anything, the volumes will decline. Absolutely. So, um, you know, Radio Lazarus is no more um, because that vineyard died in the drought. 
It was. It had survived several droughts. It was 60 or 70 years old. It finally conked in. So old vineyard sites, top-end producers. It's an easy formula. You just have to get onto the waiting list <laughs> to get onto the mailing list. Okay. Now, which is which one of those is going to give you the greatest drinking pleasure? Because you said not to ask. So now I'm asking um, in 10 years' time. Ah, red or white? Red. Ah, you see, now the red one is quite an interesting one because um, I'm not completely convinced about the joys of Swartland Red because I'm a bit of a classicist. Yeah. And in my own way, Bordeaux and Burgundy are the two that I would you can't go wrong gravitate. With Paul, you can't go wrong with Paul Sauer. I mean, and that's the point. Yeah. You would have to say to yourself, can on Corporal deliver it always does deliver the quality is always there the age worthiness is indisputable it's remarkably affordable at a thousand rand a bottle well the cab <laughs> no no the cab yeah, no, ca- comes in at 500 and the pulsar when it is released is 700 and something okay. that's not a bad buy for a wine that you know will definitely get better um they're managing the alcohols they're managing the intensity they're managing the fruit it's super smart wine. And they just doubled the land, of course, because they bought. They didn't double it. They bought it an extra 50%. They bought the Ladybird wine. Leibach. Leibach. But let me add that I'm not sure that the fruit that will go into the Paul okay. Sars will come from there. Lovely. Michael Fridgen, always a joy. Lovely to see you. Thank you for being our grape shifter this evening.